Okay. What could possibly go wrong? That's right. <laughs> All right, here we go. I am going to mute you for just a second, then I'll unmute you as we get started. All right. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Frankum with the Leading Saints with Leading Saints. And we are doing a Saturday morning webinar, getting back on track with some of these, uh, some of these interesting interviews and extra content that we'd like to put out there. And uh, so as you listen to this, uh, we encourage you to comment, to, um, to share it, to maybe tag people, give us a thumbs up when you like something, uh, give us an angry face if you don't like something, and uh, that would be awesome. So our guest today is David Patterson. How are you, David? Oh, wait, let me unmute you. Sorry. Uh, David I Patterson. There you are. We got to hear you. How are you, David? <laughs> I'm great, Kurt. Thank you. Good. Thank now, you where much. is it? Uh, give us a little background on who you are, where, where you're speaking from, and uh, put, put, us, put us into your context here. All right. Well, first of all, I'm a big fan, Kurt. You know that. Oh, go I, on. Uh, no, it's absolutely true. I was bishop for three years and I listened to you. I've been in the stake presidency now for three years and I've been listening to you. So I'm a little starstruck here. So just bear with me. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> no, we're talking today from my, off, my home office in, uh, in Dallas, Texas, actually about 16 miles south of Dallas. Um, we've been here for oh, about eight years now. Came out of Southern California. We were in San Diego for about 28 years. And, uh, and I grew up in Canada, my wife and I, we grew up in Northwestern Ontario, where I checked this morning and it's only 22 below. Oh, and, uh, yeah, but it, it's good. It feels like 36 below. With the wind. So <laughs> there's an upside there. So, uh, nice. Yeah. And so I reached out to you and here we are. That's great. And uh, you originally sent me an email a few weeks, a few weeks back. Uh, what, uh, what encouraged you to, to email me? Well, I had uh, just, it was weird because I had just finished my book. I mean, literally, I've been writing this book and trying to work out my own program here for about 10 years. And uh, that, it was Christmas Day that I finished it, uh, just this past year. And I thought, well... I know a guy that I've been listening to forever, so I'll just email him and see if he'll even talk to me. And really, Kurt, I thought it was going to be like months before <laughs> we'd get in touch because, you know, you're a big time guy and all that. And, <laughs> I create and, uh, that perception, don't I? <laughs> well, yeah, you do a great job of it. And uh, so anyway, I shot the email off and uh, you responded like in about three minutes and said, well, call me or something like that and yeah wow i was stunned so we got on the phone and we talked a little bit and here we are nice so, so before your years in uh leadership obviously you've had several years in leadership um but you went through a time of some in, in uh, intense levels of, of addiction right right uh, where does that story start how did that all begin well that starts a long time ago um I had undiagnosed dyslexia and a, a kind of a learning disorder. So as I went through grade school, I really struggled. And by the time I got to middle school, I failed grade seven twice, failed grade eight twice. And I just, I couldn't keep up because I couldn't read and, and properly and, and uh, attention deficit disorder, I guess they'd call it now, but mm. back in those days. And, uh, and then my dad so it's kind of weird. It's broken up into 10-year into blocks. Like the first 10 years of my life were great. And 
we were members of the church and up in Canada, my dad was branch president. My mom was chorister and relief society president, just all of that kind of stuff. And little tiny branch, there was only 15 or 20 of us and half of those were my cousins. And, and uh, my dad had a nervous breakdown and, and I witnessed that as they took him away. And, and I was about 10 years old then. And by the time I was about 12 years old, I was starting to be really done with everything. I was just struggling in school, struggling in life and, and started to go the alcohol route. It was readily available, not in my home, but up there it's, I mean, when it's 36 below, there's not a lot to do. And so there's friends and things have alcohol and stuff around. So we went down that road and, and then, um, I went pretty much inactive by the time I was 14 and, and then for that six years, I was pretty much out of the church. And then when I was 15, I was out of my home pretty much. I was drifting in and out and, and I'd go home sometimes and then I wouldn't be home for long periods of time. And, and uh, then one day I was home and there was a fight between my mom and my dad and there'd been a lot of struggles and things going on. And, um, I tried to intervene in that fight and he walked out and I thought he was leaving and he came back with a rifle and shot himself in front of my mom and I. And so that was a big pivot right there, Kurt. That just really torqued things. And, uh, I went off the deep end. I just used that as really licensed to, uh, pursue every bad thing you could possibly pursue. And, you know, I guess now I look back in an effort of coping, you know, and, uh, so I was out of the house and pretty much on the street for about four years. And, uh, and so how old were you this time? Were you still 13, 12, 13? Uh, or? I was 17 when he committed suicide. Oh, okay. And uh, so I was home for a little bit and then I was gone again. And so mm-hmm. for the next three years, I just kind of went nuts and, uh, and did everything that you can possibly do and, and got myself addicted to street drugs and all those things. And then I met my mom's cleaning lady, which, ended up being my wife. She used to come around and clean my mom's apartment. And I, I met her up in Canada and uh, started down the righteous path, you know, the covenant path. And, and uh, you know, there's all the dating stuff and all of that. And then she was just, she had just been baptized and uh, well, a year before. So she's a new member, right? She's 27. I'm 20. And, uh, and we're dating and, uh, talking about getting married and she says well where would we get married and I said well in the temple of course you know because I only knew primary answers you know <laughs> that's that's what they tell you where else primary. would you get married right <laughs> yeah exactly except the problem was I was a teacher <laughs> oh yeah and so so I had a lot of work to do so I had a good branch president and he walked me through the repentance program and got I got clean the first time and I I, I call that my gift recovery from God, you know, that was, it was relatively easy. Uh, I mean, there was withdrawals and all that kind of stuff, but it, it, it passed pretty quickly. And, um, and so then for the next 10 years, I was good, clean, sober, all of that. And then I hurt my back. We were in San Diego now and uh, I hurt my back and I was serving in a bishopric at the time. And, and um, our executive secretary was a medical doctor. And he said, oh, I can prescribe you some muscle relaxers and stuff. So he gave me a one-month prescription, right? And, and that really worked. 
and it calmed down a whole bunch of other things because I hadn't really dealt with my dad's suicide yet. It was still unresolved. And uh, so I, uh, uh, there was a, a background noise, a, a reel of that whole event just kind of played constantly in the background. I've come to learn now that that's called PTSD. But um, so those, those drugs to help my back really helped this other kind of lingering big elephant in the room. And of course, we're living in San Diego and being a frugal member of the church, I found out that you could go to Mexico and buy those drugs for a tenth of the price and uh, bring them back absolutely legal. There was no problem with it. So that's what I did and got my... And it wouldn't require a doctor's prescription of anything? No, you just go down and you can buy them and and you're good. And you don't need a, you didn't need a prescription to cross the border even with them at that time. That's since changed. But uh, over the next 20 years, that went from, uh, I was, but at the end of 20 years, I was taking a one month prescription every day. And hmm. uh, so at that point, I went into Kaiser Rehab in San Diego and realized that if I stopped immediately, that I could die from the seizures that would from that particular drug. Yeah. And so let me ask you, during this time, yeah. you're, you're just, uh, you know, week to week, you're in a bishopric and serving. And sure. from, from your perspective, I mean, you're just this good uh, uh, Latter-day Saint that's, that's doing yeah. his duty, but that, that needs these, this medication as well. But Yeah, but in the background, and that's exactly right. You call it medication, right? <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, when you look back at it, and, and, you know, my wife, Susan and I will look back and, and you go, what the heck were we thinking you know go down we'll make our monthly trip to mexico pick up this big thousand thing of pills right and bring them back and then we'll just do it again next month sometimes i do it by myself and all of that but what happened was two two events kurt one was uh they changed the law and now that became illegal and my little trip to Mexico down to Tecate was now going to be considered international drug trafficking. Oh no. <laughs> and at the time I was serving in the stake young men's presidency and I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to work. This is yeah. just, this, I, I can't do this, you know? And, uh, and then a friend of mine who was a former Bishop, he hung himself and uh, I was talking with his brother as we led up to the funeral and come to find out that he was on prescription drugs and had addic- was addicted to prescription drugs and had struggled with that. And they, they had just found that out basically after his, or in this time of, from his suicide. And, and so it was, uh, it was a real eye opener to me for as dumb as it sounds, I had never linked suicide. So now I kind of had these bookends at the beginning of my life, I had this suicide with my dad. At the end, now, here I was, 51 years old, I think at the time, or 50, and looking at another suicide caused from mental illness and drug addiction, and I thought, dang, this is me. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm right here, and it scared the daylights out of me, and uh, so I went and I talked to my stake president because I kind of felt I worked for him. You know, I was in the stake young men's presidency. So, and I went to him and, and I re- Kurt, when I went, I really thought this is it. 
you know, they're, they're going to excommunicate me, lose, I'm going to lose my priesthood and all of that. I just thought this is terrible. And I, I, that's how I went in. I went in with that idea and I sat there with him and now this doesn't happen in every case, of course, but he sat there and he listened to my story and he says, well, we need to get you help. And I say, okay. He says, you need to see professionals, get that taken care of. And, uh, and I said, so what about my recommend and all that kind of stuff? And he says, well, you need to be in the temple as much as you can, as much as you're allowed. You know? And I, wow. Okay. Okay. And that kind of gave me some hope and a lot of hope actually. And I went to uh, the Kaiser Rehab Center in, in San Diego. And uh, that's when they told me that the bed was available for me. And I went, I don't need a bed. <laughs> in the back of my attic brain, I'm thinking, well, I'll do this thing for two weeks and, and we'll be good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't work that way, you know? So they, uh, long story short, I ended up doing an outpatient program five days a week for the next 18 months. That was my full-time job. And, wow. uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty and, grueling. And, and I hated so it. So at this point, as you're going into rehab, did you have a pretty clear, um, I mean, had you reconciled the fact that you were an addict or you just needed yeah. some? Well, yeah, when I first got there, I would call, I would classify myself, you know, like, and, um, as a high functioning addict, you know, well, there's no such thing as a high functioning addict, you know, that's, 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 those are just funny words to say, yeah, you're addicted. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, exactly. And so it took me, it took me a while to wrap my brain around it. Cause they said, well, first off, you're going to have, you have to do group therapy. I said, oh, and I'm ashamed to say it, but at the time I said, why do I have to sit with a bunch of losers to figure myself out? You know, like, why can't I just talk to somebody, you know, I don't know. And to come to find out that is the big part, isn't it? That's when you sit there and listen to other people's stories and get out of your own head and hear what's going on and come to realize that you're not all that far different. And uh, very, very uh, humbling and frustrating. Uh, I was mad a lot of the times and I have a recovery journal that's got some not nice words in there, you know, yeah. it just, yeah, it just wasn't, wasn't all that much fun. But, and so uh, did this, did this cause sort of most things in your life just to be put on hold as far as your, yeah. your calling well, and your service in the church? And Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Everything, everything just kind of, you had to, it's like, uh, I, I liken it to dialysis. I mean, if you have kidney failure, you just don't kind of sweep it under the rug and say, well, I'll deal with that later. I, I'll just keep going here, you know? Because uh, if you don't get your dialysis, you're gone in about three or four days. And, uh, and so now that's where I put my recovery. My recovery has to take that kind of precedent. And, uh, and that is the challenge because there's thousands and millions of people that dabble in recovery. And for some reason, I just stuck to it, even though it was miserable and I hated it. And, you know, it, it wasn't an easy thing because we lived in kind of an area of San Diego and I had to ride a bus, ride a train, ride another bus and have to have to be there for eight o'clock in the morning. So I started at six in the morning to get to rehab, you know, 
and then attended multiple meetings and classes all day long and then do the same routine coming home. And, and they say the harder you start or the, the more committed you are when you start, the longer you'll go. And it's been 12 years now, so 13 yeah. coming up. Yeah. What was the dynamic in your, in your marriage at that time? Would you, was your wife pretty supportive and, yeah. Oh, yeah. Susan always has been. And she grasped onto that old Al-Anon thing. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. And I, I don't control it. You know, she she mm -hmm. captured that really quick. And uh, thank heavens for that. So there wasn't all of that. There wasn't a guilt factor for her or any of those things. She, she thought, nope, this is David's problem. And I'll support him, but he has to go through this stuff. And, and so that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. And... Tell me a little bit more in detail as far as that journey during those 18 months. I mean, because you said there was some anger there at times. Lots. Was there moments where you thought, you know, I think I'm okay now. We're done with this. I'm going to move on. Um, yeah, about every second day. And uh, <laughs> okay. what I, I used to call it my 15-second clock. And, and I talk about it in my book. And, and what that is is about every 15 seconds you have to make the decision, am I going to be an addict or do this? You know, and it sounds manic. It sounds crazy. You know, how can you cope with that? Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because I've been making bad decisions for a long, long time. And now I'm having to practice making a good decision. And that's what it, and that's what it looks like is about every 15 seconds you need to, to make that decision. And it, it got better and better. You know, it was, it was literally uh, the 15 second clock ran for the first couple of weeks. And, and that's exhausting. It's just, yeah horrible and then it'll stretch to 30 seconds and then a minute and then five minutes and and then you you know and but i'm talking three months <laughs> before it starts doing that and that's the trouble in my in my business now is it's hard to make this sound exciting <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to hi i'm here to sell you on the excitement of getting clean you know and it's uh it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult task. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. It pays off. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate the way you articulate that. Cause I've heard a lot of addicts where um, it, when they're in the beginning of their recovery, they see other addicts in recovery and they, it seems so easy for them where they're like going 15 second to 15 second, just white knuckling it. But over right. time, it's not like today you're, you're thinking in increments of 15 seconds. I mean, no. it's, it's no. several uh, months or years or <laughs> well, I, I don't think it ever gets that long. I really okay. don't because you're in a maintenance, you know, you're running a maintenance program and there's temptations and there's opportunities all around us all the time. And those decisions are made multiple times a day, uh, but not in a manic panic kind of situation. It's, mm -hmm. it's more, it's controlled. You know, I have my tools in place and I, I must do them. I have to have my quote unquote, my dialysis, you know, I, I the hungry, angry, lonely, tired thing that really means something. You know, if you're hungry, you got to eat. If you're angry, you got to resolve that. If you're lonely, get with people. If you're tired, go to bed, you know. And, and I've told, when I was called as bishop, I told my counselors, I kind of came out to them a little bit. And I said, here's the deal. If I'm in a meeting and we're going long and, uh, and I tell you I'm tired and I, I, I need to go home, I really mean that. I'm not fooling around. I said, mm -hmm. and I told them the story because it is like dialysis because when you're tired, you make bad decisions or, or you're weakened and you're, you're coming from a weak place. 
and uh, and so you have to honor that and and that's what I do now and yeah. that's what keeps the keeps the wolf away from the door and as you, you, go ahead I guess the, the overall point being that as you talk with addicts they you can give them this message of it gets it gets better like it gets easier well, absolutely you know yeah. it's not that you're white knuckling it for the rest of your life right right and and no you're not you know you're not you can mess up and be white knuckling it again i mean the 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 turn the, the turn is quick uh to go back and then it can be worse but uh but no it it gets better but it took a long time i was shocked because i was dealing with multiple things i wasn't just dealing with the addiction you because addiction is always just a manifestation of pain right it's something was haywire, something's gone wrong, you have some trauma, drama, or some kind of behavior in your life that is causing pain. And you're trying to cope and, and, and your coping mechanisms gotten sideways and, and, and you don't know what to do. And so that's all you know to do. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, uh, that's a point I wanted to ask you about that if there's anything I've learned about addiction, you know, through the various interviews I've done and, and as right. a leader that it's not all about the behavior. Like there's an under, yeah. there's a trauma that they're, cope, they're trying to cope with and, and reconcile. And the addiction typically makes them go numb to that trauma right. and then they don't have to deal with it. Right. Like you talk about the, you know, as you started taking those pills, it sort of numb that, that right. uh, constant uh, um, trauma from your past and yeah. you're able to cope with it. Right. Right, right, because that literally was a video that ran in the back of my brain 24 hours a day. It was me telling my dad, leave my mom alone, him go leaving, going, getting the gun, coming back, shooting himself. Oh. That just played, 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 and I never dealt with it. And, well, yeah, if that thing's playing in the, in the background all the time and you're not dealing with it, you have to do something. You have to make that noise stop. And I'm not saying it's a good excuse, you know, or a reason, but it was a fact. Yeah. And uh, I remember sitting with my therapist the first time and she said, well, as you come to terms with your PTSD, and that's the very first time I ever heard that in a sentence with my name, you know, you come to terms with your PTSD. And I went, I don't have PTSD. And she says, well, yeah, you do. And no, I don't. And, you know, and she says, well, here's what happened. Your dad committed suicide in front of you, right? Right. That's a traumatic event. It happened a long time ago. That's post, right? <laughs> and so it's a post-traumatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, 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 for, and my, I just sat there with my mouth open thinking, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, no. And, I, and there was just this fight going back and forth yeah. in my brain trying to – it was, was there was there a yeah. certain amount of stigma around that term for you? Is that why it was hard for you to embrace that term? I just never applied it to myself. Hmm. And of course, this was, you know, this is 12 years ago. And, and things on PTSD have changed a lot in the last 12 years. The conversation yeah. is quite a bit different now than it was even 12 years ago. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was just dumbfounding to me to actually, because you always think, PTSD, oh, that's a soldier's disease, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You have to go to some severe uh, yeah. war-torn places to... to right, PTSD. right. That was the but, what thought, anyways. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and well, yeah, that is war-torn when your dad shoots himself in the house. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty much a battle. And, yeah. uh, but now we come to find out that, you know, uh, I've worked with clients 
parents have slapped them in the face when they're a child. And that, that just plays over and over and, and, and it becomes a narrative and it becomes a background to their life. And, uh, and cause that's a traumatic event. Yeah. And, and that is, and I, I'm not an expert on PTSD by any means, but it, it does fall into that traumatic event type, um, yeah. activity. So. So it seems like that, you know, the kind of the first step is the addict has to first admit that they are an addict. And then the second step is sort of they have to, they have to uh, realize that there's some trauma that they haven't dealt with. That's, and that's the route that I take kind of in the book is, well, this is the route I take is that uh, you need to, you need to be able to, first of all, get pretty honest with yourself. And, and I call it the relationship alignment where, you're the same person in front of everybody. So I'm the same person at church, if it's a member, if it's a non-member, then I'm the same person at home with my children as I am with my boss. I talk in the same tones and the same, you know, I wouldn't say this to my kids, so I don't say it to my boss. I wouldn't act this way at school, so, and, and with my friends, I'd act the same way in front of my parents. And just try and get that relationship alignment right, because that's the basic honesty part, right? not even dealing with addiction, not dealing with anything yet. Just try and do that. Try and be honest in that, unless your addiction is like literally killing yourself. But I mean, uh, but that's the first in my, that's my first step is that relationship alignment. Then coming to terms of change, determining where you are and how badly you want to change. Because if somebody doesn't want to change, you're not going to change them. It doesn't much matter. I mean, they're going to find their way. And, uh, and, the, the yeah. trick in addiction is, is all addicts have to hit bottom to, to figure out that they need to change. Now, our goal is, not, or your goal as non-addicts, I guess, is to help us figure out where bottom is without killing ourselves. Because that, once you hit that bottom, we can't help you anymore. Yeah. So it's keeping them alive, keeping us alive long enough to... Uh, figure out where bottom is and make turn that corner. So then we teach, I teach them about the, the steps of change. Yeah. And one, then once you have a change, then I use my compass model that I developed all through my own addiction. To be honest, Kurt, I was trying to put everything together in my book. So it was David's handbook for life. You know, I just wanted a place where I could go and find my own stuff so that I could make my life better or just my own encyclopedia, you know, yeah. of, of techniques, skills, and why. And then I just laced it in with my story and, and now it's become a book. So. Yeah. Or so, it's becoming um, a book. You, you mentioned that you, um, you were in the rehab, the, the outpatient rehab for about 18 right. months. And then, right. and that is where you were exposed to some professional counseling that helped you Absolutely. out the trauma. Yep. And, yeah. then, and then I assume that counseling continued even after the outpatient program. Not a lot. I mean, after about two years and, okay. uh, and the odd time I'll still, I'll talk to, I have friends that are therapists now and I tell them, take your friend hat off. I need to talk to you. <laughs> you know? And so, and, and I have one in particular that I kind of work with and, Yeah. and not on, but I maybe every eight months or so. Yeah. But, but, but it's a maintenance program, right? I mean, you absolutely. You gotta then that maintenance never ends, right? It, just, it right. doesn't necessarily remain as a day to day thing, but right. every six months, eight months, you know, you you check in. Well, and 
yeah, and recalibrate. Exactly. And meetings are still a part of my life. I mean, now I'm over them. That's my responsibility in stake presidency is the ARP program. Hmm. And so I have multiple meetings and I attend them on a semi-regular basis because it changes things to some degree when a member of the stake presidency shows up at an ARP meeting. It kind of alters the chemistry a little bit, but uh, they know my story. Uh, president Romney, our stake president allowed me to tell my story from the pulpit and state conference. Yeah. And uh, that was, that was very kind of him to do that. Number yeah. one, number two, at the end of the meeting, there was just too deep at the rostrum of people wanting to say, and I saw people from meetings because I had been to meetings, right? And then I saw other people. And as a matter of fact, I have a little program that I do. I, I go to different stakes and do a program. I call it 12 Steps to the Sacrament. And uh, I was doing a program like that up in uh, Denton, which is you know 40 miles north of us. And I went up there and, and I was walking, I, I walked in the building and this woman just came up to me. She's in her thirties and she just walked up to me, tears in her eyes and gave me a big hug and walked away. And I went, who the heck, what is that about? You know, and it was kind of weird. And then afterwards she had kind of composed herself a little bit. She says, I, I attended your state conference. And she says, I, I heard your story and, and I want you to know that it really helped. And, and wow. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a, a great example because as, as leaders, sometimes we, um, you know, we see maybe s uh, some uh, consistency in the level of addiction issues in our ward or stake. And we think, okay, I'm going to, one, we may default to the idea of I'm going to give a talk or a lesson, a fifth Sunday lesson, a sacrament talk and address this from the leader standpoint. Right. Or we say, uh, I'm going to bring in a professional counselor to do that, right. which none of these are like horrible ideas, but from my experience, like get, finding an addict in recovery in your area and letting them just tell their story, like they don't right. even have to say, here's the, here's the 10 step program or the five step program, or, but just telling their story, right. it like removes that barrier of shame where then they're yeah. just willing to step forward and talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, and, and I'm real cautious in my, in my, practice and, and as I'm working with uh, in the church as a leader is because addicts usually in the first year, their life has changed drastically. You know, they've gone from their addiction to now, boy, it looks great, everything. And I call it just being rosy. And, and you know, it's the rose colored glasses and I'm taking on the world. And, and sometimes they're dangerous because they, they come in and they, they make it look or sound easy and they're all excited. And, but they don't have the depth of recovery that, uh, that people can use and that they're not really ready to help other people. Uh, a testimony or something like that, but to, to even sponsor after a year is, is uh, pretty tough. Yeah. I, in my opinion, I, man, I'm real cautious about that because we're, we're dealing with God's children here. And, yeah. and, and I'm I real cautious like that. They require, I mean, most 12-step programs require at least a year of sobriety or, or right. before they can and, be a sponsor. Yep. And I require at least two of, of even my uh, facilitators in the meeting or, or uh, in, in the ARP meetings. Yeah. That they have to be clean of their addiction, counting days. No, 
Because if I walk up to an addict and I say, so are you clean? Are things going well? Because I do that. And, and they say, oh, yeah. And I say, what's your clean date? Well, it's kind of uh, sort of, I think, July of last. I said, nail that down. Go back on your calendar and nail that down. Because yeah. I'm a firm believer in counting, in counting yeah. time. Because there's a great success. You can look. Even in the darkest hours, you can say, hey, I, I've, got, I've got three months here. I'm not blowing this now you know, yeah. or whatever that is. And so I'm a firm believer in counting. We use tokens in our stake yeah. and, uh, and the whole deal for pornography, whatever it is. That's great advice for, for a leader that's working with somebody, obviously a leader, a bishop um, who isn't a recovering addict couldn't, it's not appropriate for them to be a sponsor, but they could ask questions like that. Like what's your date? You know what? Yeah. Because that, I think that's a clear indication that they're really taking this seriously. It's not like wishy-washy, right. right? Exactly, exactly. It's not airy-fairy up in their head. Oh, yeah, I've been clean for months. And then you start nailing down. I've sat in my office here and, and say, okay, you've been clean for three months, so let's talk about that. And walk back in the calendar. And, and really, it's about 21 days. You yeah. know? And, and they go, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's amazing. So, so when's your date, David? Uh, seven, seven, no, let's see. Seven, seventeen, oh seven. Nice. So from that point of recovery, how many, how much time passed before you were called as the Bishop? Oh, six years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested by that dynamic because sometimes there's this, we have these stigmas in the church and I mean, every organization that involves human beings has stigmas and, and things like that, you know, cultural uh, stigmas. So was that? I have to, I have to correct. Four yeah. years. Four years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Four From years. Seven after to you. eleven. I was called in uh, November of eleven. Oh, nice. I was called in January of eleven. So we were. Well, look at us. <laughs> yeah, but you were young and dynamic. Yeah, well, <laughs> old addict. <laughs> I promise I was more confused than you. But, uh, anyways, <laughs> the the point being is that, like, how do you? Um, what was, did that come up? Like in the, was your state president worried about that? Was, I mean, I had to move Kurt. I'm running out of power. Oh, are you? Okay. Do you need to reconnect yeah. your, cause yeah, I don't no. see you anymore. Okay. Well, uh, things doing its thing. So let's see. Oh, if there, I, you are. there we come. Wow. New, new background. New We're, background. Well, you have to change things. Up. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. So, my cord so didn't was, reach. What was that? Um, the what was there any question as far as your past yeah yeah there was was so stake president interviews me and and good man of course and 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 i'm sitting in there and i'm so here's what happened we moved from from san diego to dallas and i moved here for work and so i'm minding my own business and i'm teaching adult sunday school right and uh so i did that for about six months and then i got called into the bishopric and I'm naive and stupid, so I'm acting as counselor and doing my job and, and all of that. And I don't realize that the bishop is coming up on us five years, you know, thereabouts. And uh, so I'm working there and everything's good. And then I wrote in my journal one night, I had a, just a horrible feeling that I might be bishop one day here. And I guess it, the line, stars aligned. And I wrote in my journal that I thought that this might take place. And and uh and i did that almost five months before i was called and so i had nightmares about that forever it was just amazing for that five months anyway so stake i go in and and uh 
and he we're talking and and he said did you in one of the questions i remember was have you done anything to embarrass the church and i thought well, that's an interesting question you know to put the church in a bad light and i thought about it for a while and it was quite a while and i, I thought well i'm i said i went inactive when i was 16 or 14 and um, lived on the street from the time I was about 16 to 20 and did all the things that you would imagine a drug addict does on the street. And uh, I've repented of that and I've talked to priesthood leaders about that. And, uh, and uh, he says, so did you do anything that put the church in a bad light? And I said, not that those people would know. <laughs> and he said, good, and uh, moved on, and that was that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, that was the extent of it. And so, um, and of course, walk through the, all the temple recommend questions and all the other things yeah. that you're, they yeah. ask you when you're a bishop, right? So About walking that the room, did the, the state president was overly uh, knowledgeable of your uh, recovery process until you, you shared that, or? Yeah, I, I think it came out a little later in our PPIs and stuff. Uh -huh. But I, I really believe that if I've reconciled it with the Lord and truly reconciled it with yeah. the Lord, and he could have quizzed me more. I didn't withhold anything. And, I, and so uh, we di I didn't go into detail because the detail had been dealt with, mm -hmm. you know, back, back in the day, because we were yeah. talking 30 years ago. And uh, now when I got called to the stake presidency, that was different. I came right out and told them straight up who I was and what was going on mm -hmm. and, uh, or what had gone on. Yeah. And uh, everybody was okay with that at the time. So, yeah. And, and, and uh, um, oh, I just lost the question I was going to ask, but, uh, oh, the, did you go from Bishop directly into the state presidency or was there? Right. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, I served so, as bishop for three and a half years. Uh, obviously, as a bishop, uh, you uh, you know interact with individuals in the midst of addiction. Uh, what and obviously, <laughs> you're not recommending that uh, you know bishops get addicted and go through recovery so they're more uh, uh, able to, <laughs> yeah. to help. But <laughs> yeah, you had it <laughs> easy. You had addiction. <laughs> what was that dynamic like? Um, and how how did you approach those that were that you could see were addicted that maybe. They didn't want to admit that quite yet. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's coming across, but I'm pretty straight shooter. I, I don't pull any punches when I'm talking to people. And what would happen is somebody would come in and they'd start talking all around the subject. And, and, and of course, my antennae are up for all things addiction. And, uh, and so they, if they like for example, like a pornography issue or something like that. And I said, have you ever thought you were addicted to pornography? And they go, no. And then I'd say something to the effect, well, why can't you quit then? You know, like, why can't you stop? And then that leads to another conversation, right? And, uh, and so, and, and I remember eyes being, you know, people thinking about it. And that's one of the things I say in, uh, in, in that 12 steps to the sacrament 
program is, is, you know, I, you're looking at me as a recovered addict and maybe you admire that. Maybe that bothers you, but you're all addicts in some way. And, uh, and, and they'll look at you, you know, I see the congregation kind of look at you and you go, well, I don't want you to say it out loud, but just think of your favorite sin. The one you're really struggling with that behavior. That's what I'm talking about because you're getting a chemical dump from that behavior and that might be your addiction. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting, um, an interesting concept because a lot of, you know, quote unquote addictions, like you said, that a lot of them don't carry the stigma like prescription drug addiction, like pornography addiction, but you know, social media addiction or video game addiction, there's not as strong as a, as a stigma there. That's people are just saying, no, I just, this is a hobby of mine or like doing it. Right. But, um, right. And so, and, and Kurt, you probably know because you've, you've interviewed, hundreds of people and, and, and lots of about addiction, but the top three addictions right now are what? Caffeine, mm. food, and phones. Yeah. <laughs> in America, that's the number one addiction. I didn't hear pornography in there. I didn't hear uh, prescription drugs, heroin, any of those things. No, the adversary is way too subtle for that. Yeah. And, and to really just, again, now that we're <laughs> I mean, we sort of are, but it's like, again, there's no stigma there. So it just sort of feels weird. Like, what do you mean I'm addicted to my phone or, you know, to uh, the food or whatever, but um, to kind of step back and say, okay, um, what is it? What am I trying to numb when I do those things? And where am I when I sort of get carried away with those things? What's happening in my life, right? Yeah. and again, Simon's, it's not that you need to be, go check into a intense rehab program and no. go see a counselor every day, but just to step right. back and say, hmm, yeah, my life is a little bit unmanageable because of that, uh, that phone or that yeah. Simon, Simon, Simon Sinek in his TED Talk says, if you get up from your chair and go to the bathroom holding your phone, you might be an addict. <laughs> <laughs> if yes. you walk around the house, holding your phone, you might be an addict. <laughs> I'm just yeah. saying, that's what he right. said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but it's so interesting, just that stigma part that it's cause, well, we're not like homeless and sleeping in a gutter somewhere. So he must not be an addict, but every addict, as I interview these people, like that's, they go to their first, you know, 12 step meeting or to rehab and they just feel like they're going to walk in. They're going to be the only clean cut person and the rest are going to be, look like bums. Oh yeah. They're all junkies, you know? Yeah, but it's not the case. <laughs> no, not even close. Not yeah. even close. As you look out at your congregation, 25% of them are dealing with some kind of addictive behavior. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask as far as, um, so in that, as you met with addicts, were you pretty upfront about your experience with addicts when you're serving as a bishop? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the bishop's office, I was. I wasn't from the pulpit. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I mentioned my addiction issues at all or former issues and still uh, at all from the pulpit when I was Bishop, but in the office I would. And so over time people knew, and I'm sure there was talk in the ward or whatever, but it, yeah. uh, I don't know how far that went and it didn't bother me. Yeah. So how did it, how did the opportunity now in the state presidency, uh, how did your state president approach you about sharing your story in state conference? 
Well, it was kind of interesting because you know how that process works when the general authorities come and they call and, and there's all the interviewing and all of that. Well, right after my interview with the general authorities, uh, Elder Cardin, I think it was, and then I, uh, I went straight into the next, because I was first counselor, called as first counselor. So stake president and his wife are already in a high council room, right? They've been called, they're sitting in there, they've been making decisions and trying to get things started. And because we were uh, a whole new stake presidency, we had split the stake and, and all of that. So I walked in and, and the very first thing, well, the first thing he said is, Dave, you can be with the youth as much as you want, but I need your help with the Melchizedek priesthood. And I went, oh, cool. Okay. Because I've been in youth forever. That's what I had done for ever. So uh, that was a little bit of a a shock and then later in just a few minutes then I said now you know my story a little bit and he says nope and so then I shared it with him right there and I says how are you with having a counselor with that kind of history how do you want me to present myself because if you never want me to talk about it again that's fine and uh, uh, or I'll do whatever you want me to do and he says well who else would tell your story <laughs> and so we we kind of started off on that foot so that was really cool i yeah i thought he was really kind and and open and collaborative with that so yeah uh, we and then I, that led I, to a state president or a state conference talk yeah after almost two years mm-hmm. you know two years in the state presidency and and because you need to get to know each other and you need to know yeah. what you're going to say and you know that there's a there's a trust level and just all of that that goes with it yeah and kind of establish and, that um that identity as a member of the state presidency rather than the addict who's also yeah. a member of the state presidency right right and i'd like to say it was all planned out but it wasn't it was yeah. by the spirit you know sure. it was just just as we go along and and i would talk to people and i he he gave me the responsibility of the uh, uh arp program so I was over that. And at that time, we were just having one general meeting. Now we have a general meeting, a uh, pornography-specific meeting, a Spanish general meeting, and a, and a spouse's meeting. All three of those plus a phone line. So, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm just, I really appreciate you telling the story and the fact that your story involves you, you with experience as a bishop, as a member of the state presidency after uh, your recovery began. Because sometimes, you know, the culture of the church and – um, we sort of, you know, we have people that are completely repentant that they've gone, you know, they've, they're in recovery if it's really to addiction or, or whatever. And they're the most, some of the most stable people, but we sort of have this scarlet letter on them like, well, but let's not put them in any role of influence or, you know, what if they go get a little bit too carried away with their story or, you know, then what will, will we, what, what will people think? You know, so I appreciate like the fact that, you've continued to have these opportunities to serve in leadership and, and that's okay. And, and they've, that stigma isn't always ho- hovering over your, your head. And, and I think it's, it just breaks yeah. my heart when s- that stigma keeps good men and women from who have reached recovery or in are in recovery and now don't get as many opportunities to, to serve and influence others. All right. And thank you for raising the point because it is, and I hadn't thought of it. Well, until you just were describing it now, but we have two other leaders. One was in a bishopric and, and was struggling and, and was released and, and 
got his life back together again and we called him back into a bishopric again hmm. and and you know over a period of time and and of course each case stands on its own in front of the lord you know and and so you know you don't want to we don't want to paint the picture here that oh yeah just you know, it's a formulaic you know you you go to rehab or whatever your problem is and in a year's time they'll call you into the bishopric you know no <laughs> Right. First of all, you don't want that. You know, that's, yeah. And second that's of all, that's not the goal, right? That's not. Yeah. Nobody wanted. Nobody asked for these callings, and uh, and if you do, you don't get them. You know, and that's kind of how the church works. And, and yeah. So, yeah, you're right. There, there's, uh, and I see that um, uh, rolling back a little bit. You know, we're we're. We're becoming more Christ-like, I think. We're starting to care and feel more for each other. And, and, and at least that's been my experience. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just more empathetic than I've ever been in my life before. Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, and I hope as a culture, we're sort of, especially after, you know, uh, Elder Holland's talks and such, that we're sort of getting past this perfection complex. Uh, yeah. That, we want to, we want to call a bishop or a leaf society that appears, we know they're not perfect, but uh, we want someone that really appears like they are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we want to know that they're perfect or we don't want to know anything about, we want that, you know, some people they put you up on that pedestal and I don't like yeah. talking about other people all that much, but sure. I know I have in the past, you know, and, and then you yeah. come to realize and everybody, and I think it was elder Iring that says that, uh, that the majority, his old high priest group leader, I think, taught him that that uh, the majority of people that you meet are in crisis. Yeah. And I, I went and looked at a whole bunch of studies and and uh, and read those, and I, I think it's higher than I think it's more like sixty five percent of the people that you meet are in some kind of crisis. They're dealing with their daughter that's de- dying, or they they've got cancer, or they've got these are big issues and we're right on a knife edge with them you know yeah. and uh and it's amazing and, and we don't realize that of each other and why why should we kind of because it'd be overwhelming if <laughs> if you had to deal with everybody's issues all the time you you know what it feels like to be bishop yeah but uh yeah so again i appreciate you sharing your story just because i i hope that leaders listening can kind of maybe take a second look or a third look at some of those people who maybe they've maybe even subconsciously they've been looking over just because they think, well, their life was a mess once. So let's not roll the dice because it may be a mess again. When, yeah. <laughs> when I think sometimes we risk that too much with people who appear stable and, you know, can are really good at putting on that facade, well, but all addicts uh, are good actors. Yeah. You know, we're right. all and, great. We're all great actors. So you're right in, in one, one sense, Kurt. And then on the other sense, that power of discernment and going by the spirit. Yep. But, but not to write he, Well, the Lord's told us not to judge. Right. And yep. uh, even, even common judges in Israel have to have to listen to the spirit. Yeah. So I want to ask you before we wrap up, as far as the uh, addiction recovery program, uh, obviously you uh, have a unique perspective as a leader uh, who's gone through recovery and is now um, helping facilitate an addiction recovery program in your stake. Any tips or uh, pitfalls or things that would be worth mentioning to help leaders who are trying to establish a program or who think they don't, maybe there's a lot, I know a lot of stakes feel like, Oh, we, that's not really a problem here. We don't need to do that. They can drive an hour and a half if they, if they really need it. Yeah, no, that, well, I don't know anywhere you drive for an hour and a half in Utah, but out here you really could. The, uh, <coughs> excuse me the uh 
I think for bishops to be aware, Bishop Ricks and ward councils, and, and this is what I've asked our ward councils to do, is, is become familiar with the ARP program. You know, watch some of the meetings that you can see online and, uh, and, and see what's going on. Open your mind up to that. Don't, don't push it away. And if you hear yourself saying, well, that's really not a problem here, you're wrong. You're just flat wrong. As we know now, you know, just to stay on pornography just for a minute, that uh, we know now that if your kids are eight years old, they've seen pornography. At, on some, they've been exposed accidentally or somewhere or they're involved or it, it is a part of the world and, and they've seen it. And if you don't believe that, you're putting your head in the sand on that. So uh, your ward leaders need to really understand the program and try and open their heart to it a little bit. And, and that's probably the biggest thing is, is taking those stigmas away and, and preconceived ideas that, oh, yeah, he's a junkie and, and you know, that's it. We're done. And, uh, or all addicts are junkies and we don't have any junkies sitting in our, you know, I've looked at him and he's okay. No, yeah. it's not the case. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. That's yeah. awesome. Great advice. Great advice. Well, I definitely need, I'm probably tag them in the, in the comments here of our Facebook live, but um, uh, you need to get connected with the, the next step uh, podcast guys. Uh, Brad, oh, okay. and Jay, I don't know if you're aware of them, but they yeah, do. I know them. Yeah. 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 But uh, I think you'd be a, a great interview there on on their podcast as well. well and uh, so as we wrap up here, are we missing anything before I ask my final question? Well, the book is coming out here. I want to yeah. at least, take a minute and, and, and talk about that. What the book does is it's kind of a, you need to be on a 12 step program or you need to be starting something or wanting change and then this will help you. And it's, uh, it's a companion to change. So if you're looking to change, it's called Live One Life. Uh, and, uh, and that's my business now is coaching and mentoring and, uh, and guiding and directing addicts the best I can, both in the church and out. As a matter of fact, we're, I'm working with a megachurch here in Dallas, uh, African-American megachurch, and uh, we're going to roll the, we're hoping to roll the uh, ARP program into their, into their organization. So it's very exciting. And uh, uh, so, and my website is liveonelifecoach.com. So if we can plug that in somewhere, that'd be great. And okay. the services I have there is I have coaching, online coaching. Uh, I mean, I hit almost every, every point. I have a, a program where you get texts and a calendar and, and keep you on track on a daily basis for as little as $50 a year and another one for 50 bucks a month and another one for 50 bucks a week. So and 50 bucks a week, you're working with me directly. So Awesome. Yeah, Perfect. so there's that. So uh, last question, the, the common question I ask is, as you have uh, had opportunity to serve in leadership capacities and uh, be a leader among addicts as well, uh, how has that made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Mm. I know you ask this question all the time, and I thought about it a little bit. And I think my MO and how I've learned to... to uh, try and represent the savior as best as I can is to stay out of his way. And what I mean by that is, is 
as a leader, first of all, we provide the scaffolding of the church, which is the, the covenants, the covenants of baptism, covenants of uh, at, you make at the sacrament table or at, at the temple, and make sure that we're providing an opportunity and talking about those opportunities. When we go on visits of state presidency, uh, I don't, I don't, I try not to spend a lot of time talking about their job in their car. I mean, anybody can talk about that. When you remember the state presidency in somebody's home, I like to get down to it as quickly as I can without being offensive and, and say, so what's the plan for your next ordinance? You know, you've been baptized and so you're not coming to church. So can we talk about sacrament? And then we have that conversation and, and then get out of the Lord's way and just let that sit in the room for a while and uh, let people think about what they're really doing. And I like to explain why I'm there and how I got there. You know, I'm here because of Bishop Rick knelt and prayed where I should go and visit. So here I am. So why am I here? And, and, and by asking those questions and staying out of the Lord's way and letting them talk and answer that question, why, why is a member of the state presidency here in my house? Why, why is this ministering brother sitting in my living room, you know, uh, and stay out of the Lord's way. All right. Well, shall we cut it off there? We are off. Let's see. Um, 